so much of my research has actually refuted uh, beliefs, pre previous beliefs that I've held. It's been quite interesting uh, when you actually carry out your own research and you refute your own hypotheses and your own uh, previously held beliefs. And by the way, that is, to me, that is the essence of what a, a true scientist does. You, you know, I'm not about uh, proving what I want to believe. It's about discovery. It's about uh, finding out the truth, seeking the truth. And that's uh, ultimately what uh, research hopefully does. Hi, my name is Pete McCall, and welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, hey, you know the deal. That voice you heard in the beginning is the guest for this episode, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. Before I get into the full introduction for Dr. Schoenfeld, I want to say a big thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. I mean it. I really... The numbers are doing well. You guys are doing great. I'm getting some great feedback, got some great reviews. Thank you so much. If you like the podcast, please take a moment to leave a review. At the very least, subscribe to it. I'm trying to do one to two episodes a week. One episode is going to be a quick fit tip. One episode is going to be a full interview with a health and fitness expert. I also got a couple a couple interviews have fallen in my lap and I'm taking advantage of them. And I really, you're going to have, I think you're really going to enjoy some of the content I have coming up. So please hit subscribe so you don't miss any of it. And also do me a favor. If you have a blog, if you do a lot of posting about fitness and exercise and you like what you hear on the All About Fitness podcast, please, you have my permission, by all means, share it to your audience. I love it when people tag me on Instagram. I now have a new Instagram handle. I changed my handle from uh, my name, which is really not as important, to that of the podcast. So if you're looking for me, if you're looking for me on Instagram, please connect with All About Fitness Podcast on Instagram. That's All About Fitness Podcast on Instagram. I'm trying to put up a lot more content. Plus, another thing that I'm doing, if you like the podcast, what I'm trying to do is I'm going to post a story or post or put up a post about upcoming guests. I did this with the, with one of my upcoming guests in the next couple of weeks, Dr. Stuart McGill. So when I have a little bit of notice, I'm going to try to post on the All About Fitness podcast Instagram channel to let you know what guests are coming up. So if you have any questions that you want to ask, you can either DM me or put them down in the comments below on Instagram. So that's All About Fitness podcast on Instagram, and I will be letting you know what guests are coming up or what interviews I have scheduled so you can ask me the questions to ask. Now, to get into the introduction for Brad, I'm going to start with a little story. Once upon a time, that's the way all stories start, right? I was working as an education director for a premium level health club, I, and I geek out on this stuff. If you listen to me, you know I geek out on this. And I was going into I thought I was doing the right thing. I was talking about this and that, whatever, whatever science-y, geeky thing. I was trying to, and honestly, it's an ego thing. I was trying to sound over-impressive with the words I was using. And one of the trainers in the back of the room said, this is all well and good, but all my clients want to do is to look great naked. And that really, that caused me to think. Now, one reason why I'm telling you that story is because that really is, at the end of the day, that's what we all want out of exercise, right? We want to feel better. We want better health, but we also want to look great. And that's also, that just happens to be the name of the blog for Dr. Schoenfeld's blog. His website is Look Great Naked. I'm going to have a link to that down below. So if you like what you hear on this podcast, by all means, connect with Dr. Schoenfeld. And the first time I saw Brad speak, was many, many years ago, back in the early 2000s when he was a personal trainer in the New York area. And what I liked about him right, right away was he was very serious 
about his approach to exercise. And if you want to learn more about exercise, if you want to get more serious about exercise, then pick up a copy of my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. I go through the science of of exercise, teach you how to do strength training programs, metabolic conditioning, mobility training. The book contains 21 different workouts, and you will learn how to design your own workout programs. There's a link down below in the show notes. That's how you can support the podcast. You can also pick up some of my eBooks available at my website. And hey, if you want to try it before you buy it, I get that. Go to PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's PeteMcCallFitness.com. If you sign up for my mailing list, I will send you a chapter of Smarter Workouts along with a bodyweight workout so you can try it first. Now, what we're talking about today, what Dr. Schoenfeld is famous for, is Dr. Schoenfeld researches muscle hypertrophy, muscle growth. The title of his latest book is Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. That's exactly what we talk about today. Today's a geek out session. We talk about the mechanisms of muscle growth, what causes muscles to grow, and the best type of workouts that you should be doing if you're interested in muscles that are not only strong, but to help you look great naked. So let's get started with Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, author of The Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. The second edition was out in 2020, and I wanted to catch up with him and get some of the latest information on how we can make muscles grow through exercise. Let's get going. On today on All About Fitness, I am with Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, a professor of exercise science at Lehman College in the Bronx, New York. And I'm holding up a copy of your your book, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. When when was the second edition released? You just came out the second edition and I haven't picked it up yet. When When did you release the second edition? Yeah, that's the first edition. The second one came out in June, so about six months ago. Uh, I'm very proud of it. It has a ton of new content, about 30% new content and uh, several new chapters added. So uh, pick that one up. Well, through, that's di- what- through to hypertrophy, pick that one up. Well, and that's what I do, Brad. I mean, when I see a new chat, when I especially, and, and let me let me make this a little bit more clear, especially with a text like that, that, that I believe is like a seminal, like a foundational text, that if people that do what we do and that want to understand how the body responds to exercise, anytime a new edition of a book comes out, they should invest in the money. Do you do the same thing? Am I not? Am I the only one that does that? Yeah, I mean, it depends upon what the topic is. So like in a, a discipline like muscle hypertrophy, it's a very rapidly evolving field. If it's a standard exercise physiology textbook, we don't. There's not that much new that we're figuring out. You know, so it would depend upon. Again, really would depend upon what the uh, discipline is. Now, if the exercise physiology book is, let's say, 20 years old, then yeah, then that'd be bad. <laughs> but the uh, we know a lot more. The research has uh, was done a lot earlier in that field where hypertrophy. It's uh, really more of a novel field that where it's kind of catching up and. Since uh, the five years ago when I published the first books, just a ton of new information has come out, new research. Well, and you're the one doing a lot of the research on that. I mean, I, in your lab, so obviously you want to be able to, to be able to feature that. Now, how'd you get how'd you get interested in in the in the topic of hypertrophy? I mean, I, when we're all young, we go to the gym because we want big muscles. But as, as a scientist, how'd you how'd you get started down the road of studying hypertrophy? I mean, that it kind of was personal. So I grew up a real skinny kid and uh, found bodybuilding in my early 20s. And uh, it uh, changed my life. Ultimately, it really uh, it made a huge difference in my self-esteem. And uh, I then was a personal trainer. Uh, I gravitated towards training a lot of people who had those same aspirations. 
So uh, ultimately, to make a long story short, I started realizing when I got into the scientific aspect, realized how much, uh, how many gaps there were in the literature that the strength and conditioning field was dominated by research on strength and on power, which for most athletes, that's the primary outcomes, whereas kind of the bodybuilding uh, aspect fell by the wayside. But if you look at most people, uh, when I was a personal trainer, the vast majority of my clients that were coming in weren't saying, you know, my primary goal is to sprint uh, half <laughs> fast or to, or to jump an inch higher. They said, I want to look right naked. I want to, I want to get bigger muscles. And um, anyway, it uh, led me to my career as, as it is now. And it's something I've just I'm really passionate about. Well, and I think that's, that's an interesting thing, Brad, because I just realized like over this past year, I, I came up with my second book on how high intensity exercise slows down the aging process. It's called Ageless Intensity. And as I was digging into some of the research on HIT and high intensity interval training, there's this huge shift. Whereas before the year 2000, about 90% of, of research on HIT was done specifically on performance, just what you talked about, that, that most of the research was done on performance. And it was in the early 2000s with like Marty Gabala's lab and a couple other labs that started looking at HIT. How do we, can we apply HIT? They, they're asking the question, can we apply HIT to the average population? We started seeing this big shift in the research literature. Has something, is that kind of similar to what happened in the study of hypertrophy? I mean, you said, and I think you're 100% right, I know you're 100% right, is that a majority of the people that walk in the gym that's their goal. Their goal isn't to sprint 20 meters faster. Their goal is to get bigger muscles. But has there been a big shift in the literature in terms of how, how it's being studied? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there was um, hypertrophy. Certainly there was hypertrophy research. I'm not saying there was none, but it was mostly kind of an afterthought. Most of it was done uh, in conjunction with the understanding that bigger muscles uh, it translates into greater strength. So there is a correlation, although it's not certainly not a linear correlation between strength and hypertrophy. Uh, and, and there were some labs that were doing uh, some work on it, but most of it was in untrained individuals and it was just very limited. And I'd like to think that I had a hand in uh, promoting the importance of it. Uh, again, my when I came into the field, so this was circa 2010, uh, when I made the transition from being a trainer into an educator researcher, so we're talking 10 years now, uh, really the field was wide open. There's just been a huge shift in terms of the focus now and just where I think the popularity, the people seeing, researchers seeing how important this is to so many people has uh, kind of propelled the research and uh, it continues to, to grow. Well, and the only thing I'm going to say... Well, the only thing I'm going to say, Brad, about you writing this book is I've read a lot of your studies, like the stuff that you get pub that gets published in the Strength and Conditioning Research Journal. So this is kind of a fanboy uh, session for me as well because I love reading your research. And I'm kind of like, dang it, I could have waited and just read it all in one shot in your book instead of going study by study. But one of the things I want to ask about because I think – and this is what I got this, I think, from you years ago. But I think – and you shifted your thought process – because once upon a time, did, did we not believe that, that lightweights and high reps was not really conducive to hypertrophy? And I think some of your work looks specifically at that. Talk a little bit about that and what did you find in relation to using – because we hear that, that, that gym myth all the time, right? If you want toned muscles, you need to lift with lightweights and high reps. What does your research show about that? Yeah, so it's uh, apropos that you mentioned that because so much of my research has actually refuted – 
uh, beliefs, pre previous beliefs that I've held. It's been quite interesting uh, when you actually carry out your own research and you refute your own hypotheses and your own uh, previously held beliefs. And by the way, that is, to me, that is the essence of what a, a true scientist does. You, you know, I'm not about uh, proving what I want to believe. It's about discovery. It's about uh, finding out the truth, seeking the truth. And that's uh, ultimately what uh, research hopefully does. And uh, what you just mentioned has been a real hobby horse of mine topic uh, where um, we, we've done quite a, a bit of research on the effects of low load training. So we're talking 20 plus reps, uh, 20 plus RM, repetition maximum, and going up 30 plus. Uh, and it used to be, when I first came into the field, uh, it was widely believed that uh, anything lower than 65% of your one RM, so below about 12 to 15 uh, repetitions, you were basically just doing cardio. That uh, was was a function of muscle endurance and cardio, and uh, and you weren't going to build any muscles. And what we found, and not only my my lab, certainly we've done uh, quite a bit in this area, but uh, multiple other labs have confirmed this, uh, that you can... Uh, grow larger muscles with a very wide array of loading zones and going up to 40 plus repetitions. Uh, and, and it's similar, the actual hypertrophy is similar to the so-called hypertrophy zone, because it was always thought like your bodybuilding reps are your eight to 12 for maximum muscle building. And what, uh, what the literature really shows, I think compellingly now, quite compellingly, is that the similar hypertrophy can be attained over a very wide spectrum of loading zones. Now, with that said, I would say that uh, probably from an efficiency standpoint, uh, your hypertrophy zone is, is what I would recommend the majority of your hypertrophy training be in uh, if you're looking to maximize growth, simply because number one, uh, it is, you spend less time uh, it has nothing really to do with the load per se, other than you're going to be able to fatigue the muscles, which is requisite to getting larger muscles uh, in a shorter period of time. And also uh, what I would say is that training with very high repetitions causes a, a lot of uh, metabolic acidosis, which is um, not very fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> adherence, uh, it, you know, people don't like training with very high reps. It uh, can have negative effects on adherence. But if you if you want to, and by the way, there are people that have joint related issues, et cetera, and they just can't train with heavier loads. It's a very viable way to maintain or, or even increase your hypertrophy. So, yeah, that's. Well, I just want to say, Brad, I'm, I'm glad you said that about the research, because it, when you read your studies, it comes across clear, very clearly that, that you went in thinking one way. And the outcome of the research led you to go in a different direction. I mean, just so you know that that it's very clear in, in your in your published studies that that kind of happens. And I think that and I think that's the really cool thing. And I and I think you're right. Is I think that anything can, as long as you, the critical point is, I guess the question is, the critical point is reaching fatigue. Right? Is it's not just enough to pick up a light weight and do 20 reps, but doesn't your doesn't the evidence show that you have to reach a point of fatigue? And how would you define define that point? I mean, is that am I correct in that? And how would you define the point of fatigue? Yeah, what I would say, I think more succinctly, I would say you need to challenge your muscles beyond their present capacity. And that would involve not necessarily going well at failure, uh, although I'm not, there might be, that's still an area of contention as to the need to actually train to failure. Uh, we have a meta analysis coming out. Uh, I'll give you a heads up and a scoop. 
uh, it should be out within the next couple of weeks, uh, which really does not show you need to train the failure. But there are gaps in the literature, which at least to me, especially if you're very elite in terms of your training status, uh, there are some caveats to that. But you, I think it's quite clear that you need to train close to your fatigue level, you know, failure level. And that means that the muscles are challenged uh, to an extent. And what that uh, fatigue level is, again, is not well. It, the research really cannot tell us that at this point. And I think to some extent it will depend from somewhat from person to person of individual factors. I think also uh, you can't necessarily look at it as one as all versus as a binary, all versus nothing. Let's say all sets at uh, uh, RP of nine, let's say, because you could do one, let's say if you're doing four sets of an exercise, you could do one at an RP of seven, one at an RP of eight, one at an RP of nine, and then a set to all out failure. And those are things that just haven't been well studied. So it's, it's not an all or none necessarily phenomenon. And uh, what I would say is quite uh, with, with a good bit of a surety, is that you need to train close to fatigue, close to failure. And, and that's the thing. I mean, the funny thing is, Brad, you, you say this, and this is what bodybuilders have known for years, right? I mean, bodybuilders kind of have decided, part, large, large part of that is I think bodybuilders are some of the best scientists because especially the ones that take notes and, and keep track of it because they know it works for them. And I think your work kind of comes along and explains why, right? Is that what, and, and, what I would, and where I'm going to go with this question is, Talk a little bit about the difference between mechanical overload and metabolic overload. Because I think for years, whether you do 10 reps or whether you do 20 reps, either way, you're creating both mechanical and metabolic stress on the tissues. Talk a little bit about what that is. Because I really do think that, that we don't give enough credence to the bodybuilding community for being able to document their work. It just Each one is a study of one as opposed to a meta-analysis to see how it affects different individuals. Yeah, so to actually circle back to what you said previously or what you just said now and you also said previously before <laughs> answering the second question is that um, research can uh, help to provide mechanistic answers. So to provide uh, answers as to why, as to the underlying rationale, but also research provides guidelines. So every person should be their own N equals one experiment. Uh, there is a wide uh, array of inter-individual differences that are always seen in, in research and that people respond differently. And ultimately people need to use research. Research, what I always say is research provides guidelines. And then people need to be their own N equals one experiment if you're looking to maximize your own results. Now, if you just want decent results, you know, and, and good results, research can pretty much get you there or close to there. But to really start to optimize results uh, on an individual level, you need to be your own N equals one experiments and bodybuilders become very good at that uh, for the most part, or they're, or they're not good bodybuilders. <laughs> um, and then to your uh, subsequent question, uh, what I would say is, is that uh, mechanical tension, or me when you say mechanical fatigue, pure mechanical fatigue without metabolic stress would happen with very low repetition ranges, let's say with a one RM or a two RM or three RM where there just is not much metabolic buildup, but mechanical tension per se, every time you're lifting, you're creating mechanical tension and mechanical tension is the essence, is the most important factor in, um, in hypertrophy. So if you're not creating a tension in the muscle or a stress 
chemical stress within the muscle. There's really no impetus for it or, or very little, and I shouldn't say none, because you can actually get some growth even with, it's been shown with some degree of metabolic stress and or damage, but it's primarily a, 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 a tension related uh, phenomenon. Now, the question then becomes how much does something like metabolic stress contribute as an additive factor, and that we're not sure of it. Certainly we know that metabolic stress factors related to metabolic stress enter into uh, hypertrophic responses. The question is, are they additive or are they explanatory? So I I think this would be beyond the scope of of the type of interview we're doing, and it can get quite technical. Uh, But metabolic stress is the buildup of metabolites that happen during training. The primary one that most people know about is lactic acid, which is causes the burn that's felt. But there's many, there's hundreds of metabolites that are uh, that we know of that have been discovered in research. Uh, Exercise related metabolites. Well, let me ask let me ask this question: How do those metabolites refer to, or how do they are they precursors for the anabolic hormones? Because that that's some. I mean, again, maybe I'm reading it wrong, or maybe I'm incomplete with that. But my understanding is that sometimes that lactic, that acidosis and, and, the, and the metabolite buildup is a stimulus for like IGF and for, for insulin growth factors and, and, and growth hormone. It, what's the relationship between the, that metabolic stress and the anabolic hormones that, that help build muscle tissue? So there is a relationship, but there's a relationship between the acute anabolic response, not chronic hormonal response. So um, metabolic stress has been shown to correlate with the uh, increase in or the elevations, post-exercise elevations in particular growth hormone and potentially testosterone and IGF-1. Growth hormone is a uh, precursor. Uh, it helps to basically, it's, it's a signaler for IGF-1. And that's actually often thought to be its primary anabolic function. But the problem with that thinking is, is that there really is not much, or, or the evidence is poor, is weak, that the acute anabolic response to resistance training is involved in the uh, hypertrophic response. It used to be thought that the acute anabolic response had a high uh, degree of um, of correlation. I mean, there is some correlation, but but that it ha- had a high degree of applicability to hypertrophy. And uh, more recent research that we have shows that uh, it really doesn't. And I am. I'd be quite confident in saying that uh, if there is a an effect, that it would not be much, and that that should not be the focus of someone's hi- hypertrophy related training. Shouldn't be to cause the metabolic stress, but really- well, no, that, that you shouldn't worry about whether your hormones that you're going to have jacked elevations okay. post exercise. It only lasts about an hour or so, so the okay. elevations post exercise last roughly an hour. Now, if you're talking about um, chronic elevations, particularly in testosterone, th- then there might, but that doesn't happen through metabolic. That's, that's not, uh, training does not seem to have much of an effect on that. And even with that, I would say the, uh, the studies that even show there might be some chronic elevations, which aren't related to metabolic stress, by the way, uh, the magnitude of those elevations, I don't, I'd be skeptical that they have an effect. So just for instance, if your testosterone, the normal testosterone levels are somewhere between 300 to 800. So let's say you're a guy and you have a, that's for, for a male. Let's say you have a testosterone level of 500. And let's say that you can get that up to 600 uh, nanograms per deciliter. 
there's really not much evidence. And that's on a percentage basis. You're talking 20% increase. You say, wow, that's, uh, there's not much evidence that that would have a meaningful effect on your muscle building capacity. Now, if you can increase it beyond your, your normal range, let's say you were able to get it from 500 to 1,000, yeah, that would have a, an appreciable effect. But there's no evidence that's uh, been shown that that can happen. Okay, but it does like exercise, like strength training does, and training for hypertrophy does help at least maintain T and GH levels, right? Throughout as we get older. I mean, it may not be the, the significant factor in growth, but it can help maintain regulation of the hormones or that your body still produces them. It's not really clear uh, the as far as its ability to do that. Certainly, it does upregulate what are called androgen receptor activity, which is another factor. It's not just the hormones, but androgen receptors are what the hormones bind to to carry out their effects. So, if your if your androgen receptors are not sensitized and and available for the testosterone, you're not going to be able to use your testosterone in in ways. So, it's more to it. It's a complex process, but. Uh, uh, it, it's a lot more uh, nuanced than people think. And to say that it necessarily keeps up testosterone levels, there are plenty of uh, older individuals that uh, that have been training for many years and their T levels go down with aging causes a decrease in T levels and still not clear what, now could that have been, we don't, the, the thing is you don't know, let's say you take a lifter and you're just looking at correlation, looking at their T levels at a certain period of time, you don't know what their T levels might've been if they didn't train. So uh, anyway, we don't have great info on that. But then that's the other thing I, I realized this, this last year, Brad, is, is I think you're a couple years older than me. I'm 48 and, and I don't mean like many years, but I think you're a couple years older. But you really have to. But I think people should really understand that if you're between about 45 and 60 or maybe 65, you're in this generation. If you've been working out for most of your adult life, you're in one of the first generations ever in history that's been exercising throughout the lifespan, right? So there's still a lot. I mean, I you know, when I look at it, who's it? Norm Lazarus, I think, is a professor out of uh, England that I'm trying to get on the podcast because he's in his 80s and he writes about this, about how we don't know because we've never had a population of adults in their 50s and 60s this fit and this strong to study before. Is that something you've picked up on at all? I mean, have you seen that that, that kind of correlation? That well, absolutely. That uh, we're going to hopefully now that uh, resistance training has is now entrenched as a very important uh, tool for anti aging tool, uh, and that the uh, baby boomer generation who has grown up with that uh, understanding is now getting older and uh, getting into their senior years. That we'll be able to study that to a greater degree. But it's certainly a topic that uh, really warrants. A lot more study. And look, we certainly know that resistance training, there's no question whatsoever. It's there is no better pill than yeah. resistance training because it has no side downside side, zero downside side effects. And there's a ton of positive side effects. But whether there are certain things we still that are remain to be understood, like how it affects certain hormonal um you know outcomes and, and other things. So I think we will be learning a lot more uh the effects of resistance training are still in its infancy. And, and so much of uh, our understanding of exercise in general, the research, uh, although mo look, most of the research pre 2000 or so, or certainly I would say certainly the majority of it was on cardiovascular training. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's re really with the turn of the century where we just had an explosion in uh, resistance training research and uh, I would say over the last 10 years, it's just 
really gone through the roof. So we're going to be learning a lot more over the next decade or two, and uh, we'll have a lot more answers. We'll keep, it'll keep you busy. Two more questions, then we'll wrap it up. One is on, on the role of glycogen depletion, because you talk about metabolic, you know, the high-level metabolic stress. And, and I think listeners should understand that muscle growth, because the reason why I asked the question about hormones is some people might think that, that muscle growth comes from hormones. Whereas, but the other thing is, if you deplete glycogen in muscle cells, isn't the primary adaptation is storing more glycogen and storing and glycogen holds on to water? What role does that play in terms of muscle growth? What role does like kind of the, the repletion cycle play in, in long-term hypertrophy and muscle growth? So you might be asking two, uh, or I might, I'll answer this in two ways because I'm not clear on which way you're going with this, but there is uh now if you're on a low carb diet, there is some evidence. So where your glycogen levels are, are always depleted, glycogen is an anabolic signaler or, or it's an anti-catabolic signaler at least because when you deplete glycogen, you increase what's called AMPK. Now on a, a, an acute level, it really doesn't show much effect because once you start repleting, once you start eating carbohydrates, you replete your glycogen. But if you're on a, uh, one of the thoughts is whereby uh, a ketogenic diet is not probably the best muscle building diet is because if glycogen levels are chronically depleted, your AMPK levels are chronically elevated and AMPK antagonizes anabolic signaling and something called mTOR in particular, which is a primary anabolic signaler. Um, so having glycogen repleted is, is to some extent an important factor. Now you can still, I don't want to say that you're not going to build muscle in a ketogenic diet. You clearly can, but it probably is not, at least from the preliminary evidence, we have the best diet for muscle building for maximal muscle building. And, um, we still need more research there, but, uh, on the other side of the coin, glycogen, as you mentioned, does hold water. So for each gram of glycogen, which is, for those who don't know, it's stored uh, carbohydrate within muscle and also in the liver, but primarily the muscle, and it attracts anywhere between three to four grams of water. So when you deplete glycogen, you get flat, your muscles shrivel to some extent. And then when you look, when you replete your uh, glycogen, uh, you it will, in effect, hold water. It will draw water into the cell. Bodybuilders do this all the time with uh, carb load, carb, de carb deplete, carb load cycles pre-contest, where they end up uh, being able to look fuller. They, their muscles look bigger because they deplete carbs. Then they have a carb, a super compensation of carb loading, where they get uh, more water into their muscle. Now that's not when you talk about permanent. It's only as permanent as your glycogen <laughs> repletion. But but technically, yeah. the more glycogen you could store in your muscle, the greater your a capacity to hold more water in the muscle and and the more full your muscles will look. So uh, that is called for those uh, who are savvy in the industry, it's partial, it's a form of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. And uh, it's, it's not a permanent uh, uh, adaptation, but certainly it's something that can make you look more jacked while you're, while you're holding the water. You know, and that's and that and that explains why you see. I mean, because you know, bodybuilders, it's brown rice, sweet potatoes, and water is like the is the formula for muscle growth. And that, but the reason that's one of the primary reason why I asked that was to get people realizing that relationship between carbohydrate and muscle growth. Because I think a lot of people are on these ketogenic diets. And to respect your time today. I get the final question, and and this is kind of not, not a huge segue, but I'm I, is occlusion training. 
You know, I, I think you've written a little bit about occlusion training. I'm not sure if I've read a stu- if you've studied it. Maybe I'm maybe oh, yeah. remembering quite, it, but just, because because I think because I first heard about this 15 years ago, and I think it's what Katsu was the methodology. And, and occlusion training is one of those things, Brad. I see pop up every few years as kind of like it kind of percolates up. Somebody kind of makes it popular, and and so talk a little bit about what occlusion training is. And what the benefits might be for, for muscle growth, whether they're, they're short-term or whether it's something you can do for the long run. Yeah, so occlusion training involves putting a cuff on the uh, proximal portion, so the upper portion of a muscle. So let's say you want to uh, work your biceps. You would put the cuff above the biceps, so it would be just on the deltoid level. And uh, the idea is to cut off or, or to occlude the venous. You, you want to prevent the uh, back, the uh, back, you, you want to prevent uh, blood from leaving the muscle, allow uh, blood to come into the muscle through the arteries, but prevent it through the veins. And there is still a somewhat occluded arterially as well. But uh, basically it causes what's called a hypoxic effect. So you're reducing the oxygen supply. And uh, it's not clear why, but uh, there is quite, we have a ton of evidence on it now that shows that it is effective. So you use very light loads. Uh, as a general rule, you use like 20 to 30% of your 1RM, so somewhere between 25, 30 reps, down to 15 reps. And um, uh, ultimately, it's been shown to be quite effective in, uh, in promoting muscle growth. And interestingly, I mean, this study showing that walking, if you, uh, let's say, uh, use occlusion training on the upper thigh, that it actually can have some, some effects in untrained individuals in, in muscle growth. Uh, mechanisms are still what unclear, uh, metabolic stress has been one that has been put forth. A uh, cell swelling is another because it has the effect of what's called reactive hyperemia, where, uh, you get this rush of blood into the muscle and that, uh, the pooling of, of blood, uh, acutely might drive the hypertrophic response. Uh, the, the hypoxia in itself is thought. So the lack of oxygen is thought maybe to cause certain uh, upregulation of certain substances in the muscle. We're not clear. Now, the, the caveats to this are that it's only really good for the extremities. So if you you can't tie off your chest. Your <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, yeah, you wouldn't uh, be able to do or that. Or your yeah. glutes. You know, you're, so basically, it's for your thighs, your, your calves, your, uh, your upper arms and your forearms you can use it for. Um, and, and with that, it can be very effective for rehab. There's a, we've used it in, in rehab settings. Uh, it, it is not, to me, it's really an adjunct, uh, to, to a full training program. And I do think that, uh, it, it, it can help particularly in, um, when I say particularly, certainly for bodybuilders, if you're looking at focus on hypertrophy, uh, one of the things that it has been shown that there's some emerging evidence on is that it can target your type one muscle fibers. So briefly, there are two types of fibers, type one, which are your endurance oriented fibers and type two, which are your strength oriented fibers. The type two fibers in general, tradition, traditional resistance training tend to get greater growth through, uh, through traditional training. So the fact that you can perhaps target your type one fibers would be an additive effect that uh, might be a reason why you might want to add it particularly if your goal is maximal hypertrophy. Interesting. And and the final thing is, I think no matter what, because you've talked about low load, high rep, you've talked about this. And I think the main thing is from the literature, Brad, is 
change things up on a regular basis, right? Is that's the role of periodization? What, how often should people change their program? And I know that you always like to look at data, so that's a very a bull or very wide question. But just in general, for people in the gym, general consumers looking just to get a little stronger, a little more more muscle growth, about how often should they change up their rep and loading schemes? You know, that's the question. So when you ask a question like that, my answer is always going to be, it depends. There's so yeah. many factors. And by the way, you can use a uh, an undulating type of, of routine where you're changing it up really every workout. So you can do a high rep day and a moderate rep day. So Monday can be your high rep day. Wednesday can be your, uh, when uh, Monday can be your high rep day, Wednesday, your moderate rep day and Friday, your low rep day. And when you're asking questions like that, it, that involves a, uh, an objective and a, um, and a timeline. You need, and, exactly. You need to yeah. plan out what you're looking to do and, and why and what your goals are. So there's too many factors that go into that for me to give you a cookie cutter answer. Uh, I know of, I know people no, want that type of thing, but yeah, it really exactly. does a disservice when answering that uh, if you can't give an accurate answer. And, you know, th- but in all honesty, I'm glad we're finishing on that because I want people to understand that if you ask somebody, that, I mean, Brad, there aren't many people in the industry that really know muscle growth at the level that you do. And the fact that you, the more, and, and what I've found repeatedly is the more that somebody knows, the less definitive answer they can, they can provide. You know, and it, it, you know, because you just don't know. But the, the whole reason why I ask that question is I want people to understand they just need to change it on a – they can't always do the same rep scheme and loading scheme all the time, that there should be some variation in there. I would certainly concur with that. And, and variation, in, this, variation in exercises, variation in loading schemes. So there's, uh, yeah, there's quite, a bit, quite a bit to unpack with that. Well, and if they want to get more, and I'm going to hold up for, for, uh, for viewers on YouTube, I'm holding up. This is the first edition, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, <laughs> the Science and Development of, of Muscle Hypertrophy. And the second edition is out now. And what I'm going to do, Brad, is have a link down below, not only, but, but to the Human Kinetics page. Because for listeners, I really want people to know that buying directly from the publisher, and, and Human Kinetics is my publisher as well, buying directly from the publisher is better for the author because if it's discounted on other large retailers, it comes out of our back end. So I, I, you know, I will have the link directly to the Human Kinetics page just because, I mean, A, it's a great book, and, and B, I want to be able to promote your work and, and what you've been doing. So, hey, I appreciate your time, Brad. And where can people – you have a blog, and where can people get more information just to stay up to date on what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I'm all over. So my website is Look Great Naked, uh, and it's great, not good, because I've heard bad <laughs> things about the site. Look, great. So it's <laughs> look, look Great Naked. Look, look Great Naked is my website, and I have a blog, which I need to start updating a little now. But I'm all over social media. I mean, just search me, but I'm on my primary ones are Twitter and uh, Instagram. I'm also on Facebook, although with their algorithms, I've done less with that recently. But I uh, can't thank you enough for having me on, Pete, and hopefully uh, educated the audience. Hey, this is perfect, and uh, hopefully you survived the snowstorm. Well, I really appreciate that time and, and the conversation. And uh, you've heard me say this. I say this with almost every guest. And I don't want to apologize about it because I want you guys to understand it's really difficult to give a definitive answer about exercise. As Brad said, the best study we have is, is N of 1. And, and in research terms, N just means the population of study group. Right, So you can read Brad's books. You can read Brad's research and, and say, okay, this is what we should be doing. But the reality is you got to find what's going to work best for you. 
whatever your goals are, whatever your lifestyle is, your nutrition, your sleep, all that makes a big difference in the results that you get. It's one thing to spend a ton of time in the gym, but if you're not doing the work that you need to do outside the gym, you're not getting great sleep, not getting great nutrition, you're not going to get the results that you want. But it does help to know the research on how muscles adapt. And Brad is the leading guy. If not one of the leading guys, he's the leading guy because he's constantly researching. He's constantly publishing. He's constantly looking at different things. And what I really what, what really struck me about him a few years ago was he published the research on the, the low-intensity, low high repetitions. You heard him say he always thought you had to go heavier, but his research has demonstrated that that's not always the case. So with that... I'm doing a whole series on strength training. I got a couple other killer guests coming up, but I cannot talk about strength training without talking to Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. Hopefully you got a lot out of this today. I know I get a lot out of these conversations. If you want to stay in touch with me, go to my website, PeteMcCallFitness.com. If you go to PeteMcCallFitness.com and sign up for my mailing list, I will send out one or two blogs a month or, sorry, I'll send out one or two emails a month with blogs, videos, and other information on how to use exercise, not only to enhance the quality of life. I mean, that's what exercise does, right? It enhances your quality of life. But I'm trying to teach you how to use exercise to slow down the effects of time and manage the aging process. Connect with me on Instagram, the All About Fitness Podcast on Instagram. That's the All About Fitness Podcast on Instagram. And I'll be putting up, I'm trying to put up ahead of time when I'm going to interview people so you can ask me the questions I should ask them. I'm always going to try to include one or two listeners' questions in if I can get it up in time and you guys can respond in time. Check out the YouTube, my YouTube channel, All About Fitness Podcast. I'm posting these videos up on YouTube. If you want to see Brad and I talk, you can go to the YouTube channel, All About Fitness Podcast, and catch it there. And hey, as always, thank you for stopping by, and I certainly look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.